This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Uh, Before we begin our study this morning, I'll open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that is truth. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is your word that is the means of sanctification under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. It is your word that uh, teaches us how to think, what to think, how to live, and and how to uh, have a relationship with you. Father, now as we continue our study on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that in this study we will come to a greater appreciation of all that you did for us in our salvation, the magnificent demonstration of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ and how it took thousands of years to bring about His the the correct timing for his incarnation and the payment for the penalty of our sin. We pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. The second hour for the last five or six sessions, we have been studying the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a series that I am entitling Knowing Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to what did he do on the cross? Christology as a Study as a theological discipline, a particular branch of systematic theology, is a study of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the section entitled The Work of the Lord Jesus Christ is often parallel to uh, the application of that work to the individual in terms of soteriology, and much of that area I covered when we went through a short uh, series on soteriology about a year and a half ago. So the focus of this series is on knowing Christ. Now, in the previous lessons, I have specifically constructed them in a particular way so that we could see that the idea that Jesus or the Messiah would be a divine Messiah and a human Messiah would be clear. There is and has been, there is and has been tremendous assault on the person of Christ in terms of both his humanity and deity over the centuries. In the early church, the challenge was mostly to his uh, genuine, uh, uh, de- to, to his undiminished deity in uh, terms of diminishing it to some degree. There were also most uh, numerous challenges to his genuine humanity. However, in the last century or two, as a result of enlightenment thought, as a result of the impact of rationalism and empiricism on the church, the challenge has been mostly to his deity that he is human and he is not really God in the sense of full deity. So I started off by showing that in the Old Testament there were two streams of thought in relationship to the Messiah. The first is that he would be a divine Messiah. He would be undiminished deity. Now, I avoid using the word divinity. Now, we can talk about divine, but I do not like using the word divinity in uh, defining Jesus Christ because that is a word that has come to be applied by liberals and they, in terms of liberal theology. And it is used to mask or cloak what they actually believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what they mean is something less than the full, undiminished deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they will also talk about 
that spark of divinity in each and every human being. And by spark of divinity, that's their term for the fact that we're all in the image of God. So in liberal theology, since every human being is in the image of God, we each possess some spark of divinity. And that's what Jesus had. That's really what they mean. If you hear somebody say, well, I believe in the divinity of Christ, if they have any knowledge whatsoever, any kind of training, uh, anything other than just some unlearned person who doesn't know, know, know various theological nuances, then it is truly a watered-down or diluted concept, and it is not what we mean by full, undiminished deity. So the emphasis should be on undiminished deity of the Messiah. And the second strain, uh, stream of thought has to do with his being genuine humanity. The Old Testament taught that Jesus, or that the Messiah, would indeed be true humanity. He is called a son of Adam, son of Abraham, son of David, and son of man. All of these titles emphasize that the Messiah would come into human history as a human being, would come, as Isaiah says, a child. Isaiah 7.14 says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. That terminology, bearing a son, emphasizes humanity. And she will call his name Emmanuel, and that title emphasizes his deity. Emmanuel means God with us. So these two streams come most closely together in these two promises before they actually intersect in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Isaiah 9-6 we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And that first phrase, a child will be born to us, emphasizes the normal process of human birth, that the Messiah would be a human being. And we've also seen that the next phrase, a son will be given to us, is a term that related to the concept of the Son of God, especially as uh, signified in Psalm 2. So that those two first clauses indicate the uh, union of both humanity and deity. And then the rest of the verse reads, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called. And then we have four titles that relate to deity. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Eternal Father, which should be translated Father of Eternity, emphasizes his eternality, not being a father per se, because, of course, God the Son is not God the Father. They are distinct persons. And Prince of Peace, four titles emphasizing the deity of the Messiah. Now, numerous prophecies were given in the Old Testament to prepare the human race for the coming of the Messiah. But one might ask, when exactly would this occur? As the centuries rolled by and uh, Scripture was given in the Old Testament and prophecy after prophecy was given, they began to look forward to and anticipate the coming of Messiah, but they had no idea when that would occur. We might also ask, under what conditions would this occur? And we might even ask, why is it that God waited over 4,000 years before uh, the second person of the Trinity was incarnate? Why didn't God just send the Messiah in that first generation? After all, God had promised a human Messiah under the concept of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. In fact, Eve initially interpreted it that way, and in Genesis 4.1, as we have seen, she thought that Cain was that child given to her by God. It should be translated, I have gotten a child, Yahweh. She understood that, but she soon realized that Cain was not that promised seed. Why is it that God waited over 4,000 years before sending the promised Messiah? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but we get a hint in Galatians 4.4. Galatians 4.4. And in Galatians 4.4 we read, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And it is that phrase, fullness of time, that gives us a clue as to 
what God was doing, that there was a reason, that there was a purpose for God waiting 4,000 years. He was waiting for the fullness of time. The Greek word that is translated fullness is the word pleroma. Pleroma. And looks like this in the Greek. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. And it has the idea of something that is filled up, something that is uh, some sense brought to uh, completion, a different sense than uh, telios, which has also has the idea of bringing to completion, but more in the sense of maturity. It has the idea of something being fulfilled, that it was the right time. Jesus could not have come prior to the flood. Jesus could not have come uh, before the giving of the Mosaic Law. Uh, Jesus could not have come uh, a thousand years earlier because the stage was not properly set. The human race was not properly prepared to receive uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see in this phrase, the fullness of time in Galatians 4.4, is a suggestion that history has a pedagogical purpose. Now, what do I mean by that? That history has, first of all, let's just say that history has a purpose. It is not, as Henry Ford once commented, just one damn thing after another. History has a purpose to it. This is something that comes only from Christianity, and though there are a number of uh, non-Christian philosophies of history, or, or excuse me, uh, pseudo-Christian philosophies of history, such as Marxism, Hegelianism, and some other philosophies of history that have borrowed this sense of direction and purpose from Christianity. Christianity was the first uh, world religion, let's say, or philosophy, that understood that history had a purpose, that it was uh, going somewhere, that God had a plan and a reason to the affairs of mankind and that he was uh, orchestrating all of the different events in human history to bring about uh, his purposes, that God is the God of history and that God controls history. So this phrase, the fullness of time, indicates that history has a purpose and that purpose is pedagogical. By pedagogical, I mean it is designed to teach something. It is instructive. God could not send Jesus Christ just at any time in history because he was preparing man. He was instructing man in the fact that all of the human solutions developed and devised between the uh, fall of Adam and the incarnation were uh incapable of solving man's problems, that human solutions would never work, that there needed to be a divine solution. So in essence, what God was doing in 4,000 years was giving the human race an opportunity to uh, invent, develop, come up with any and every possible approach to solving life, making, bringing stability into human history, finding happiness, seeking meaning in life, and all of them would end up in bankruptcy. All of them would end up uh, leaving man unsatisfied, leaving man uh, uh, unstable, and not providing any kind of long-range solution. And so there is a purpose to history in that God allowed a number of different developments to take place. So this phrase, fullness of times, indicates that God had a a plan and a purpose, and there was a particularly appropriate time for the coming of Messiah. This term tells us that the arrival of Jesus Christ in approximately 4 B.C. was not some impromptu, spontaneous action on the part of God. He didn't just say, well, eh, now seems like a good time. Let's have the incarnation today but that this fit into an intricate plan of, of God's that involved centuries of preparation, and he was preparing the human race for the coming of the second person of the Trinity. In Galatians 4.4, 4, the context indicates that that what Paul is speaking about it has a primary reference to Israel 
and God's plan and purposes in the history of Israel. He set the stage in Israel. But we can also make a broader application to the surrounding uh, pagan Gentile culture. And what God is emphasizing is that man needed to realize the emptiness of human solutions before he would be ready for the divine solution. Furthermore, in terms of the angelic conflict, all of the lessons had not yet been learned. God had to demonstrate certain things in history in relationship to the angelic conflict. In the angelic conflict, many lessons have to be taught. One has to do with the integrity of God, that a that God, who is righteous, is completely just in sentencing rebellious creatures to the lake of fire. Throughout the Old Testament period, in different scenarios and in uh, different authority structures, God is demonstrating that that man must be completely, or the creature, must be completely oriented to the authority of God, or there will not be success. Furthermore, God was demonstrating through the history of the Gentile nations and their various religious systems that all of their solutions would ultimately be failures. And therefore, he's demonstrating in the angelic conflict that Satan cannot provide any kind of a solution to creaturely stability or creaturely happiness and that all human solutions will fail. God was demonstrating time and again through every different conceivable alternative that the creature must be 100% dependent on the Creator or there would be uh, failure. And finally, God is demonstrating and was demonstrating in the Old Testament period that only God can provide perfect justice. So God designed human history in a unique fashion to teach the impotence of human solutions and to prepare the world for this arrival of the Messiah. What was that preparation? Well, I want to look at this under two categories. First of all, Gentile preparation and then Jewish preparation. Under Gentile preparation, we have to approach this historically. We have to look at it in terms of the uh, preparation that took place during the antediluvian period. That is the period before the flood, the period from Adam to Noah. We have to look at it next in terms of the post-Diluvian preparation. And under that category, we will look at the failure of the Noahic civilization, their failure to provide stability and solutions to the human race. And ultimately, we will finish that up by looking at at both Greek and Roman civilizations in terms of what they contributed to the fullness of time. So we go back to the period from the fall to the flood. And we see a failure of that civilization. They had the presence of God on the earth as we studied in our Genesis series. In Genesis 6-3, God said that his spirit would not abide with man forever. And that indicates that God's presence was still on the earth, that his justice was mediated through the cherubs. They, the cherubs he placed around the Garden of Eden carried a flaming sword. A sword in the scripture is always a symbol of the execution of justice. So God directly administered human history from uh, the Garden of Eden during that period between the fall and the flood. And yet what happened was that man rejected God's authority, that they were susceptible to demonic influence. It was a time when demons were manifest and apparent and angels appeared on the earth. It was a completely different kind of environment than what we have today. And yet the result was failure. By after 16, approximately 1,600 years between Adam and Noah, there were only eight believers on the earth. What God demonstrated was even in, a, in an environment that was only one step removed from the perfect environment of Eden, in an environment where the, quote, supernatural was uh, visible to man, where they could see angels and demons, where they could had uh, access to God in a direct way as Enoch did. Even in that environment, man who is a fallen creature 
is inclined to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and rebelled against his authority. So God wiped out that civilization in a worldwide flood. Incidentally, we will begin studying all of the details of the Noahic flood this Wednesday night, and you don't want to uh, miss that. We have three chapters from Genesis 6, uh, or actually four chapters, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which give us tremendous detail on the flood. Four chapters out of 50 in Genesis talk about the flood. And then that sets the stage for what we will study in Genesis 10 and 11 in the Table of Nations. And I took a number of things with me on my trip to Kiev to study about the Table of Nations. And I'm afraid I'll just bore everybody to death with all of the details there. I could probably speak for four or five weeks on those genealogies. If you don't understand those genealogies and the history that's embedded there, you can't understand prophecy because everything else in the Bible after Genesis 11 refers to people group and groups and ethnic groups in terms of their tribal head listed in Genesis 10 and 11. So that becomes foundational for understanding uh, human history from a divine viewpoint. Yet most people today don't think history is important. They think it's boring. But remember, history is the outworking of the plan of God. And if you think history is boring, you're saying that God is boring, and the implication is that you're a blasphemer. So be very careful. Your history teacher in high school or college uh, probably doesn't understand things from divine viewpoints, so they are they have done a tragedy to history. But don't let that affect you when it comes to what the Bible says. So in this antediluvian period, man is a failure. That civilization is wiped out, and a new civilization began after the flood. Now, in that post-diluvian civilization, once again, there is failure. There's failure that culminates at the Tower of Babel. That civilization was, or the descendants of Noah were to scatter over the earth and to fill the earth. They failed to scatter. They organized themselves uh, at, at Babel and under the leadership of Nimrod, and they constructed the Tower of Babel as sort of a fortification reaching into the heavens, a way of protecting themselves against a god who would be... Uh, so invasive of human history that he would destroy the human race. This was such a cataclysmic thing in the psychology of that, that those early generations that they felt like they had to do something to protect themselves against a God who would so destroy the earth. Because you see their frame of reference once again is that of rebellion. They are rejecting God. They're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so they want to assert their own independence and autonomy of God. And during that time, they developed a worship of nature. And you can imagine what it must have been like having gone through the flood and that devastation that there was such an emphasis on the the new world, the new nature, that the new animals and vegetation that they saw in the post-Diluvian civilization. And perhaps with the, with the collapse of the canopy, they had a greater, uh, uh, well, let's say a, a more dramatic uh, presentation of the starry skies, and so there was a worship of the stars, and you have the development of astrology, and so those early those early religions developed in antagonism to God involved the worship of nature, the worship of fertility, the worship of the stars and the heavens. And although all civilizations started from a simple monotheism, worshiping a God known as the Almighty God, El Elyon, Genesis 14:28 to 20, that they soon were in that Romans 1:18 and following process of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and creating their own gods and goddesses, developing their own religions, mythologies, and idols. We see hints of this in a few passages. In, uh, in the Old Testament where God is warning the Jews not to be influenced by these, these pagan religious systems. For example, in Deuteronomy uh, 4.19, God warns the Jews, Take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, that you feel driven to worship them and serve them. 
which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as an inheritance. So God emphasizes that he is the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and that he gave that to all the nations, that is, all the Gentiles under the heavens and the earth. And the emphasis here is that unlike the Gentiles, the Jews are not to be seduced by the uh, by the heavens, and not to be seduced by astrology, and they are not to worship the elements of the creation instead of the creator. God allowed the Gentile nations after Babel to go their own way and to develop their own uh, religious systems and their own uh, idolatrous worship, and this is again indicated in Isaiah 47, uh, 12 and following, where we read, Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. And here he is challenging Israel, who, and they have disobeyed the Deuteronomy 4 command, and they have succumbed to the worship of, of nature. And Isaiah 47:13 says, You are wearied. Uh, with your many counsels, let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have, well, I've lost part of that on the screen. Behold, they have, verse 14 reads, Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm nor a fire to sit before, In other words, God is saying, though you have spent all your time paying attention to the astrologers who have tried to predict the course of history by the new moons, that judgment is going to come upon them. What God is pointing out is even though you may see all this regularity in nature and you come to worship that regularity, God is the one who makes those things regular. That even though nature follows a regular pattern, uh, most of the time, God is the God who can change that pattern, and even though you may not suspect judgment coming because of your astrology, nevertheless, God is still a God who interferes in human history and will bring judgment against you because you have disobeyed God. Uh, Amos 5.26 is another passage that uh, references this nature religion of the Gentiles. And talking to the... Jews, Amos says, you also carried along Sicketh your king and Cayune your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves, emphasizing that these pagan idols were a product of their own imagination. They made them for themselves and they were related to this worship of the stars and astrology. Acts 14 talks about this same process among the, the, the nature the uh, the nations that God allowed them to develop all of these different religions in order to demonstrate that no matter what man could come up with, it wouldn't satisfy the human soul. It wouldn't provide solutions to human pro- problems. Acts fourteen sixteen, Paul says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and in, and. In verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, that God still had common grace for the Gentiles, but he allowed them to follow and develop these false religions. The interesting thing is that as you go through the Old Testament period, that when you come to that period in the 6th century B.C., and remember, it was in 586 B.C. that the uh, southern kingdom of Judah was uh, overrun and destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, that in the 6th century B.C., seven or eight of the world's religions ca- came into existence, Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, Vedantic, uh, or, uh, Hinduism, uh, Greek philosophy has its roots there, uh, and a few others all come into the foreground there as the Jews are taken out of the land and scattered throughout the the, uh, nations, it appears that Satan has a counterattack because once the Jews get scattered among the nations, the gospel is going to go out to these nations. The Jews are going to be carrying their scriptures with them. And so Satan goes on a counterattack, developing all of these different uh, religious systems beginning in the 6th century 
uh, B.C. So what we see as a result of that, the period from the 6th century B.C. to the uh, Incarnation, is the two basic effects. First of all, the divine discipline will forever change the orientation of the Jews. The problem they had, as I pointed out through some of these references we've looked at in Isaiah and Amos, is that the Jews wanted to be like the Gentiles. So that's a problem with most, most Christians today, is they want to be able to be a Christian and to have a relationship with God and make sure they're going to go to heaven. But while they're on earth, they want to be able to enjoy uh, life just like all the unbelievers around them. And the result is that they're going to go through a lot of misery in this earth and a lot of divine discipline and loss of rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. And as a result of the divine discipline that God brought on Israel in, in 586 B.C., it changed the Jews' orientation forever. They never again had a problem with idolatry. The problem they had after the after the return from captivity was with legalism. Second effect was that by scattering the Jews throughout the ancient world, they took the promise of a coming Messiah throughout the world, and that helped pave the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the fullness of times at the in the coming of the Messiah, there are two basic, two Gentile nations that contribute the most to the preparation of the world for the coming of Messiah. And the first is Greek civilization, and the second is Roman civilization. And each has negative as well as positive contributions. Each has negative as well as positive contributions. So let's start with Greek civilization, the negative contributions of Greek civilization. Generally, the contributions of Greek civilizations were in three areas. They had intellectual contributions, positive and negative, language contributions, and culture. In terms of their culture, though they were later conquered by the Romans militarily, it was Greek culture that conquered Roman civilization, as indicated in the poetry of Horace. So let's look at some negative contributions. First of all, in terms of Greek, Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy developed, starting in about the 6th century B.C., as an attempt to answer the basic questions of human existence on the basis of human reason and experience alone, on the basis of uh, human reason and experience alone. It was, philosophy in itself is very similar to theology in that it seeks to answer the same questions. Uh, is there some sort of ultimate being? Theology, we would call that God, but there's a difference, and I'm not going to go into that, but uh, they, they search for ultimate me, being ultimate meaning in life or ultimate existence, and that's referred to under the category of metaphysics. Also, the question of how do we know things? How can we know, um, how do we know with certainty? How can we know that we know and that what we know is the truth? So how do we know is another question. What is uh, right and what is wrong? The question of ethics is the province of philosophy. Also, we have uh, various questions about uh, a, a existence, meaning, purpose, human history, things of that nature all come under the categories of, Greek, uh, of, of philosophy in general. And it was the Greeks who were responsible for developing philosophy in human history. Now, the great uh, Greek scholar... F.E. Peters makes a very important observation about what happens in Greek philosophy. And if you get anything out of what I'm saying this morning in terms of understanding the significance, the negative impact uh, of, of Greek culture, you have to understand what this man said. It is, it is so, he makes such a clear statement of this, and it's unusual. Most people never understand this. He writes, quote, the rationalistic premise operative in much of Greek thought and life, and you can put American thought and life in there too. The rationalistic premise, 
You can even put evangelical thought in life there, too, because we all have, have picked up this negative strain from our Greek forefathers. The rationalistic premise operative in much of Greek thought in life was at root the belief that unaided human reason was an adequate instrument for both understanding and action. That's the point. And that's what we've all picked up in, in Western European culture, is that unaided human reason is adequate for understanding and action. Very few Greeks denied the existence of the gods, he says. And then he goes on to say what the rationalist premise did suggest was that the operation of these gods was unnecessary for the acquisition of either truth by intellect or good by will. Well, let me read that to you again. Don't fade out on this. What the rationalist premise suggests is this, that the that God, let's, let's bring this home, what their basic said was God is irrelevant to understanding truth or right and wrong. That you can arrive at truth by reason and empiricism alone, and you don't need God. He doesn't speak to, to every affair of every category of knowledge in history. See, that's where most people are today. They think, well, you know, the Bible's fine. It talks to you about your relationship with God and your personal spiritual life and how to have salvation. But don't tell me that, that I have to take my discipline of biology and submit that to the authority of Scripture. Don't tell me that as a history teacher, I, I have to teach from a biblical philosophy of history. Don't tell me that if I'm teaching political theory that I have to... Uh, I have to understand a biblical view of authority and government and structure. Don't tell me that if I'm in the, the realm of arts that somehow the Bible speaks to the, to the foundational presuppositions uh, of being an artist. Don't tell me that I've, if I'm an economist that I, my starting point has to be the Bible and not human experience. And that comes from Greek thought. And if you think that you can start any intellectual discipline in life without starting at the Bible as your starting point and then working out from there, then you are an intellectual idolater. You are setting up your discipline, whatever it is, whether it's history or literature or mathematics or biology, you're setting it up as, as a realm of knowledge that can that you can master without understanding what the Creator said about knowledge to begin with. And that comes from, from Greek thought. And this has permeated Western civilization. So this is a negative contribution. So one result of Greek philosophy, though, was that as advanced as it became under the, under the thought forms of Aristotle and Plato and others, it still failed to satisfy the spiritual longings of a creature made in the image of God. So uh, one impact of philosophy, of course, was that it debunked all of the gods, the, the pagan gods they'd worshipped before. They couldn't rationally believe in those gods. So they were left without their gods, which gave meaning. But philosophy was also bankrupt. So by the first century, people were desperate for meaning in life. That's what led them to turn to the mystery religions. Mystery religions also come out of Greek civilization. And in mystery religions, the emphasis was not on reason and uh, empiricism or logic. It was on emotion. It was on how you felt. And did you feel like you worshipped God this morning? Did God meet you at church this morning? Did you go away feeling uplifted? You know, that, that whole idea still permeates uh, modern society, and we pick that up. Uh, from the Greek. So mystery religions emphasize that subjective aspect, uh, emphasizing emotion, and it also added a lot of elements of perversion from the fertility religions as well. However, there were positive contributions from this. For example, Greek philosophy developed uh, disciplines of logic and thought and analytical thought that had not been present in human history before. And as tools... As tools now, that was going to enable the church to be able to think through abstract doctrines such as the Trinity and hypostatic union and other elements of theology. So there are positive aspects to the development of Greek philosophy. Furthermore, in Greek philosophy, there was an emphasis placed on a transcendent world. There was a, a recognition that this world could not be the source of meaning, value, and absolutes. That had to come from outside, but they had no way of knowing how to get there or what it was that was transcendent. 
Greek literature also emphasized the virtues and ethics, and this became important in their political development. You had the emphasis of a concept called dikaiosune, which we, we translate as righteousness in the New Testament, and this becomes a virtue emphasized in Greek culture. So, but uh, negatively, uh, it left, still left a, a, a vacuum. They had, uh, an emphasis on human reason, but human reason was insufficient. Another positive contribution would be through the philosophies of Epicureanism and Stoicism. There was an emphasis on the individual as opposed to a group. That set the stage for people wanting an individual relationship with God. So there were certain positive contributions from Greek philosophy. A second thing that was provided positively was Greek language, the development of Koine Greek. Prior to the conquest of Alexander, you had Athenian Greek, Boeotian Greek, Spartan Greek, various different kinds or, or dialects of Greek. And as a result of Alexander the Great's conquering of the Greek peninsula in the 4th century B.C., all of these different people came together, and what evolved was a common Greek known as Koine Greek, which became the lingua franca of the uh, Greek Empire and provides the language in which the New Testament is written. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Alexander uh, did not speak Koine Greek, and Alexander did not uh, want to speak anything but his own native Macedonian. Uh, according to Plutarch, he just kind of left everybody alone, but the process of pulling all these people together eventually led to the evolution of the language in terms of Koine Greek. Now that's Greek civilization. Then the next major contribution for the fullness of time was from Roman civilization. And Rome had negative as well as positive contributions as well. Negatively in Rome, you had all the, all the things from Greek culture we've already studied, plus you had the development of substitute Religions, counterfeit spirituality. I mentioned in the first hour in relation to tongues, the Sibylle Attis cult. Sibylle was the great earth mother goddess. Uh, they came out of Phrygia in what we would call Turkey or what was then called uh, Asia. And uh, Sibylle was the goddess of fertility. And she had a consort named Attis, and each year there was the death of Attis in the fall and his resurrection in the spring. So that brought into popular view this death and resurrection motif, which is, of course, a counterfeit to uh, Christianity. Then there was a very popular religion called Mithraism that was imported from Persia, and this was particularly popular among military members. And it was characterized by a festival every December where there was a miraculously born Savior God. And in their religious system, they had various sacrificial meals, like we have communion, and uh, plus bloody sacrifices, of a bull. Furthermore, Rome negatively contributed emperor worship, which began, would be a major problem for Christians uh, in the centuries to come as to whether they would worship uh, Jesus Christ alone or worship Caesar as Lord. Positively, Roman culture contributed six things. First of all, a concept of universal law. They they the Roman Empire was the largest empire up to that time and united all of these different uh, peoples into uh, one uh, empire. So that taught people this concept of a unity despite various differences, which would prepare them for a gospel that proclaimed the unity and solidarity of the human race. Furthermore, in, as they united all these people, they developed a a concept of law that would be foundational to many of the things taught in the New Testament. Their law was first began to be developed in the early days of the Republic in the 5th century B.C. It was codified in the 12 tables, which every Roman schoolboy had to memorize. seemed like every, Roman, every American schoolboy ought to memorize the Constitution, but, oh, no, that would cause them to think. But every Roman schoolboy had to memorize the 12 tables, which also included and was uh, 
related to the the uh, laws of other nations. So it uh, it borrowed concepts from Greek culture, such as the concept of dikaiosune, or righteousness. It also picked up ideas from Greek philosophy. And some of these ideas were that these uh, universal laws were written into man's heart in his inner nature and that they were discoverable by reason and experience. But foundational is this idea of righteousness. So there was an emphasis in Roman culture on justice, this emphasis on the importance of righteousness. And that, of course, becomes a frame of reference for understanding the righteousness of God and the doctrines of justification by faith alone and imputation. Rome also contributed the idea of of a political entity. It took over the older... Uh, idea of the Greek concept of the polis and took it to a new level. And the, it was that emphasis on political unity that was inherent in their concept of, of law. Third, they brought in the Pax Romana. Because of the strength of the Roman army, there was a peace, uh, freedom from threat from highway uh, robbers, a threat from brigands and pirates out on the high seas. People could travel from one part of the empire to another part of the empire, uh, all under in a, in a peaceful environment where there was a certain amount of safety in travel. And that was aided by the development of Roman roads. They developed a tremendous highway system, which aided in travel. And, of course, those two things together aided in the, or provided an environment for the expansion of Christianity after the death of Christ, where the apostles could take uh, the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Then there was the Roman army, and there were... Uh, many soldiers that are mentioned in the Gospels who are saved, and then they are transferred from one part of the empire to another where they would take the Gospel and they would witness. And so Christianity spread to places such as Britain and Gaul and to the uh, frontiers of Germany and throughout the Roman Empire. And furthermore, these Roman military conquests also had the effect of destroying people's faith in their local gods and goddesses. If their gods and goddesses couldn't protect them and Rome defeated them, then who are they going to trust? So once again, it creates a vacuum of spirituality, and there was a a hunger that was developing. And as a result of the influence of of, uh, Judaism and the Jews that were around, there were... Uh, there was an expectation of a coming Messiah. In fact, Tacitus, a uh, Roman historian, writes that the majority were deeply impressed with a persuasion that was contained in the ancient writings of the priests that it would come to pass that at that very time that the East, remember Jerusalem is east of Rome, that the East would renew its strength and that, they, that there should go forth from Judea rulers of the world. Now, so what this tells us is that the man on the street throughout the Roman Empire is aware of this messianic expectation. Furthermore, another uh, Roman historian of that early period, Suetonius, uh, also speaks of this uh, messianic expectation. Suetonius writes, Quote, a firm persuasion had long prevailed through, through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on someone who should go forth from Judah. This prediction referred to a Roman emperor as the event showed, but the Jews applied it to themselves, uh, the Jews applying it to themselves broke into rebellion. So Suetonius and Tacitus both confirmed the fact that there was this general messianic expectation, not unlike today's expectation that Armageddon is not too far away. So all of this is to say that God prepared the Gentile nations for the coming of Messiah. He had an even more detailed uh, preparation for the Jews. The Jews had gone through many changes in their history. We've gone, we've studied this in the past. It's not new. We studied in the book of Judges that, that the people tried to rule themselves, but what happened? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the Jews had learned historically that, that the people, uh, cannot provide stability. Uh, instead of, uh, that, they wanted a king like everybody else. And in the ancient world, there was a divine, uh, concept associated with kingship. 
Kings of Egypt, kings of Assyria were also, were all associated with divinity. And they wanted to have a king like everybody else, but their human kings failed. In other words, the people can't provide stability, the leadership, the kings, uh, politics, government always fails. And then we also saw the failure of the people to keep the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. So the people were taken out of the land. They were scattered throughout the uh, Gentile nations. And those that came back, uh, instead of going back to the idolatry that had characterized the, the Jews before the, uh, before the Babylonian captivity, sought to replace their idolatry with a legalism. So they tried to provide righteousness through legalism. And that was uh, most specifically codified in the uh, in the Mishnah, and so the Pharisees were the were the proponents of this excessive legalistic righteousness, and that's what dominated. This is the the the, the context of Jesus' confrontation uh, during the incarnation with the his the 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 his interpretation of the law and divine righteousness with the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and divine righteousness. So God prepared the world through the Gentiles, through the Greeks, through the Romans, and he prepared the world through the Jews so that by the time Jesus came, every solution had been tried. Nature religions, fertility religions, philosophy, rationalism, uh, Jewish uh, legalism, every conceivable uh, permutation of human autonomy had been tried and failed, and there was a a sense among the, the world's population that there was a need for a savior, a deliverer, and it was at that time, at the fullness of times, that the Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate. And so God's timing was perfect. He had prepared the human race, and it was at that time, at the perfect time, the fullness of time, that the Savior appeared. Now, next time we will get into the most crucial doctrine of all the doctrines, the one upon which everything else hinges regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is how he came, how he came, the virgin birth, the virgin conception and birth, uh, correctly stated, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to review the historical information how you in your providence worked throughout human history to prepare mankind for the coming of the Savior. You were teaching uh, by way of example that human solutions are no solution, that the only solution is the divine solution. And as we look back over, over the history of the ancient world, we see how you worked all of these things together to produce a, a perfect situation, a perfect environment, uh, politically, uh, economically, linguistically, religiously, a perfect environment uh, in, in which to send the second person of the Trinity, that the Son who was always the Son came forth born of a woman in the fullness of times. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's, with, who's uncertain of their eternal salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, this is the opportunity uh, to take care of that. Every person is born a sinner. We are condemned under Adam's original, by Adam's original sin, and we are condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. We are born spiritually dead. But the solution was graciously provided by God the Father through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world for one purpose, and that was to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. If you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation or uncertain of your eternal destiny, this is your opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is simply believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, to trust in him and him alone, and at that instant you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with the things that we've studied. Give us a greater appreciation for how you work in history to bring about your plans and purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.